Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean steps, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens, and he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his faithful servants of Israel, the people close to his hearts. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. And I believe Sam is our teacher today. So, uh, by a show of hands, and you can be honest, who tuned out a little bit during that scripture reading? A lot of people did. This is nothing about gin. This is not a critique of gin. Um, no, I'd be much less controversial in critiquing the psalmist. Um, no. The, uh, the psalm is one that tends to be kind of forgettable. Um, it's, you know, we kind of get it. Okay, uh, everything, praise the Lord. God. Well, we, can, we can start listing all the things of everything. And there we go, that's the song. Um, it kind of seemed like the songwriter was sort of phoning it in the day he composed this. Um, I mean, this is the type of thing that people make fun of modern worship writers for. Like, oh, this song just lists a bunch of things, or just repeats the same phrase over and over. Um, Maybe there's some lazy poetic imagery of the sun and the stars praising God. But I think if we pay careful attention, there's a line in there that complicates that reading. In verse 5, it says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. For. That line explains why the sun and the moon and the stars should praise God. Its inclusion suggests that the psalmist is serious, that they really think all of these non-human parts of the universe are praising God and should be praising God. It's not just poetic language. In fact, it seems that all these different parts of the world praise God simply by existing, by being the creatures they were created to be. This is a profound thing to consider. The sea creatures and weather systems and hills and fruit trees and cedars and wild animals, and cattle, and small creatures, and birds, all give glory to God by the simple fact of their existence. This is also a sobering thought. When could we consider it 2,500 years after the psalm was written? Um, if you've been paying attention to the news recently, you've likely seen the, a UN report summarizing a huge amount of global research. The summary is 1,500 pages. Uh, so imagine how much research went in. So some reason, this huge amount of global research suggests that we are on the brink of the Earth's sixth mass extinction. In fact, it is estimated that we are currently on a trajectory to see around one million species of plants and animals vanish from the Earth. 
one million species extinct. That's not one million animals. That's one million entire groups of animals extinct. Uh, that number is beyond comprehension. We really can't grasp that. Um, imagine that we lose every single leatherback sea turtle. They're all gone. And then we lose every koala bear. We're on the brink of that right now. And every Sumatran elephant. And every rhinoceros of all five species. All the rhinos are gone. And the western chimpanzee. And every mountain gorilla. That is ten species right there. Meaning that if this happens, they're accompanied in extinction by 999,990 other species. Or consider that we humans have, at this point, only cataloged 1.3 million species in the world. We have, uh, that's how many we have been able to name. Our best estimate suggests the world contains around 8 million species. Losing 1 million species would be equivalent it to losing 77% of the species we already have identified and named. It would be losing 12.5% of our planet species. While the scale of such massive extinction is really beyond the ability of our minds to grasp, we must also recognize <laughs> that the root cause of this road toward extinction is unique. Unlike the other mass extinction events, which seem to have resulted from things like asteroid impacts and huge amounts of volcanic activity, this one is being caused by one of the species that calls Earth home. It's being caused by us. Through a combination of emissions, deforestation, habitat destruction, environmental pollution, you know this list, uh, we humans have put our non-human neighbors at risk. So what would the writer of the song, the song we read this morning, think of that? If the creatures of this world give, give glory to God, Simply by existing, what does it say about us that we are on the verge of blotting an eighth of the amount of existence? Uh, let's consider the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. This is probably a pretty familiar one, um, which we have the first creation account. It depicts God creating the entire universe, the earth, the plants, the birds, the fish, the wild animals, and then finally humans. It says that after God made humans, God blessed them. God blessed us and said to them, to us, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Uh, you may have heard this particular passage and that particular phrase, rule over, used to justify the exploitation of the earth and its resources. You might have heard it as carte blanche for us to do whatever we want without having to worry about the harm we might be causing. And in all honesty, the Hebrew term translated as rule over really is a royal word. Uh, it's speaking of humans as being like kings and queens of the earth, and uh, the rest of the earth as subjects. But exploitation is not an intrinsic part of that term. Uh, scripture is full of passages in which God speaks of what God wants from a ruler. Psalm 72 is a psalm that was used to celebrate the coronation of King Solomon, uh, the day he was crowned, and it describes what his rule over Israel should look like. It says, he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. 
He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. And in Ezekiel 34, uh, God proclaims judgment against the rulers of Israel. It says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and, slaught and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. This is two passages, but we find the theme throughout the Bible. I find this message about what God wants from those who have power over others. Uh, they are not to exploit them, but instead to act as good stewards. Ruling well means taking care of those that are vulnerable and rescuing them from death. It means using resources wisely to ensure that all can flourish. So returning to the question I posed a minute ago, if the creatures of this world give glory to God simply by existing, what does it say about us that we are on the verge of blotting and ape with them out of existence? I think it says that we are collectively failing to fulfill the job we were assigned by God to do. It says that we are sinning. And that we, the we there, is important here because the mess we've made is far bigger than any one of us. You may recall uh, the New Testament talks about the three enemies of the soul, uh, the world, the flesh, the devil. That first one, the world, refers to the huge destructive systems that we build together, often without really meaning to. It's the way in which humans can, together, build a, a sort of monster that is more than some of its parts. It's the way we accidentally create inhuman bureaucracies that lack the ability to demonstrate compassion or mercy. It's the way in which we largely unintentionally create economies that make all of us complicit in destroying the world, whether we want to be part of it or not. This is heavy stuff. Um, I wish it weren't. But we have to bear in mind that both confession and lamentation are part of the Christian tradition. They're part of the Christian way of life. It's not possible to truly confess without being thorough and honest and considering what we have done. It's not possible to lament without recognizing the gravity of the situation and the tragedy of the loss. So I suggest we take time to lament the state of the planet and our own roles, however small they may individually be, in getting to this point. It really is worthy of our grief. But in our grief, we must not grieve like those who have no hope. Grief does not mean giving up. Lament does not mean despair. Granted, despair comes up a lot when we talk about this sort of ecological crisis. Uh, the New York Times even had an opinion piece this week with the title, Surviving Despair in the Great Extinction. But despair cannot be an option for us. Consider what the gospel mean, means for despair. In the gospel, we encounter the good news that through Jesus, all of our sins are forgiven, that we are reconciled with God and the world around us without having done anything to deserve it. People in churches like us often talk about how this frees us from despair 
And what we often mean is that we no longer have to fear eternal death. But being forgiven doesn't just free us from despair by soothing our fears. Forgiveness moves us beyond the stagnation of despair. Um, imagine for a moment you've done something that really hurt your friend. And imagine that friend tells you, I forgive you completely. Um, you're forgiven. And if you were to respond to that dis with, with despair, to that forgiveness, if you were to say, you know, I can't move on. I can't see any way to repair what I've broken. I'm too bad a person. You'd be making things worse and doing harm in a new way. True repentance has multiple elements, but it always looks like an honest confession of wrongdoing, asking for forgiveness, and doing the work of trying to make things right from this point forward. Despair refuses that last step. Despair refuses to try to make things right. It refuses to even attempt to repair what has been broken. And whereas repentance puts the focus on healing the injured person, despair is self-centered. Despair puts the focus on the experience of the person who caused the injury. It puts the focus on the, that feeling of guilt and shame instead of moving forward. And so if the good news of God's forgiveness in Jesus touches us, it also empowers us to set out to do what good we can in repairing the world with love. So what can we do to repair the world as it faces the sixth great extinction? Uh, we should bear, first, bear in mind first that uh, we are still only on the brink of the sixth mass extinction. If we stay the course, if we keep the status quo, we continue on this trajectory, we can expect to lose one-eighth of the species who call this planet home. But the course can still be altered. Um, obviously, this is a global crisis. And so when it comes to the global scale of the crisis, much can and must be done in the realm of public policy, as systemic problems must be addressed as a system. And public policy requires the support of the people. And so, of course, we can and should find ways to advocate for good policy. And I trust you, and I trust that you can do that, I trust that you will do that. But what might it mean for us to work to repair the world on the human scale? Uh, the agrarian scholar, poet, and farmer Wendell Berry has written, this is a fairly long quote, the question that must be addressed, therefore, is not how to care for the planet, but how to care for each of the planet's millions of human and natural neighborhoods, each of its millions of small pieces and parcels of land, each one of which is in some precious way different from all the others. Our understandable wish to preserve the planet must somehow be reduced to the scale of our competence, that is, to the wish to preserve all of its humble households and neighborhoods. What does it mean to preserve the little patch of earth on which you live? How can you help make it hospitable for our non-human neighbors? Uh, there are many ideas available. The internet is a wonderful thing for this. And uh, the worship guide today, where it normally has a few quotes, uh, contains a link you can follow to find just a very small sampling, um, a list of resources and ideas I've put together. But I want to focus now on one thing in particular that we might do. And so I'm going to quote Wendell Berry again. He wrote, We know enough of our own history by now to be aware that people exploit what they have merely concluded to be of value. I'll read that one more time. 
We know enough of our own history by now to be aware that people exploit what they have merely concluded to be of value. But they defend what they love. To defend what we love, we need a particularizing language, for we love what we particularly know. It isn't possible for us to love the abstract concept of the environment, or the idea of biodiversity, or even the notion of planet Earth. But we can love particular places and particular creatures if we know them. If we know them. Uh, a study from researchers at Cambridge found that young children are significantly better at identifying Pokemon species than organisms such as oak trees or badgers. Um, another recent survey found that out of 2,000 adults surveyed, half couldn't identify a house sparrow. And honestly, this makes sense. Uh, through technological developments, we find that our personal and family survival now depend far less on properly identifying edible plants in a forest than it does on knowing how to operate a computer. Uh, this isn't a criticism, it's simply a fact. And so we find ourselves in a world of generic birds and generic trees and generic bugs that we cannot love. But the good news is that we can learn to know the names of particular types of birds and trees and bugs simply by choosing to cultivate a little bit of curiosity within ourselves. We can notice a particular bird, you can notice that bird and ask ourselves which kind of bird it is. We can pay attention to it and try to set its colors and lines and shape and size to memory. So we can get a bird watching book later, look it up and find out exactly what it is. Or to make it even easier, we can put technology to work in reverse. We can snap a photo on our phone, post it on Facebook and ask our friends what it is. Because someone will know. Uh, we can do the same thing for that tree in front of that one neighbor's place, uh, or we can notice a plant in the park. Uh, the second creation account in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2 this time, tells us that one of the first tasks ever assigned to humans by God was the work of naming the animals. This naming and knowing and recognizing, recognizing is in our blood. We can do it. And once you start to get going on this, you'll find that just feeding that curiosity a little bit encourages more curiosity. And so you'll want to know the name of that type of tree, too. And you'll wonder what this type of bug eats, and what eats this type of bug. Before you know it, you'll find yourself living in a re-enchanted world, in which a morning walk is not just generically nice, but a parade of northern mockingbirds, and California scrub jay, and valley oaks, and red maple and London plain. You will find yourself sharing this with those around you. Me, if, if you know people who do this, you know that you know people who do this. <laughs> uh, you'll be calling attention to the small wonders that we so easily overlook. If there are children around, you'll find yourself encouraging them, saying, come over here and look at this little pill bug, or do you see that butterfly going by? In all this, you'll be learning to love these plants, and these animals, and this place. And this love will move you to find ways to protect these neighbors who have been entrusted to your care. And you will be able to join in with the psalmist, not singing poetic repetitions of abstract ideas, but knowing that house sparrows and alligator lizards and even dandelions praise God just by existing. Let's pray.
Creator God, we need your help to learn to love your world. Make us, make us more fully human, more attentive to the world of non-human neighbors around us. Stir up love in our hearts and let that love lead us all forward as we learn to care for the world you've entrusted to us. Let us be fully motivated by love for you and the world you have made. In Jesus' name, amen.